Himalayas Studios. In 2014, Lauren Shippen wrote her first podcast pilot. And then I didn't do anything with it for an entire year because I was just caught up in this idea of, who are you kidding? You're not a writer. You're not allowed to be a writer. You don't have training for that. You don't have the experience. You don't have a degree in creative writing. You've never taken a creative writing class in your life. As it turns out, classic case of imposter syndrome. Now, Lauren is one of the most sought-after audio fiction producers in the industry. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, Lauren Shippen's journey from aspiring actor to rising podcast star. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Lauren Shippen came to podcasting the long way around. After figuring out that what she thought she wanted wasn't actually what she wanted at all. I had gone to college for theater and music in the, in the hopes of eventually moving back to New York where I grew up and, and being on Broadway. Was it the big musical for you? Oh, I am a huge Sondheim head. Ah, um, that's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I feel like it explains a lot about me. And my favorite musical of his is Assassins. Of course, yeah. I saw yeah, I actually, I saw a staging of it at, in New Haven, actually. I lived there a couple oh years ago. God. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm yeah. so jealous. So I've never actually <laughs> seen it in person because it was revived on Broadway in 2004. And my dad and my sister went, my older sister, and they didn't bring me because they thought that it was going to be like too mature. And I was 13 at the time. And then they brought the soundtrack home and I listened to the soundtrack and became obsessed with it. Mm. And actually, I was supposed to see it in New York this past spring. And of course, you know, with with everything, theater got shut down. Um, But someday I'm going to see it in person and and it will be wonderful. But yeah, I like wrote a paper on it in in college. I'm such a nerd for that stuff. And and I think that like that, that should have been a a clear sign that I was obsessed with the ideas of Americana and masculinity from from an early age. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So I, I got like halfway through my theater degree and realized that I actually was enjoying like the music scholarship aspect of it a lot more. And so I ended up changing to be a music major and doing like more academic music writing and briefly flirted with the idea of being a music journalist. Mm. Ultimately, by the time I got to the end of college, I realized that I didn't want to be doing musical theater and that I didn't want to move back to New York and do the same show eight times a week. I think that that's a like a, an incredible thing. I love being in the audience for that. And the, the magic of theater is something that can't really be captured elsewhere. But it is grueling. And you really have to love it 
in a specific way, I think, yeah. to want to get up on stage and perform the same two and a half hours eight times a week. You know, that's that's an intense physical and mental feat. Yeah, it's a real paradox of that life that the meaning of success is that you do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, it really is. And I think in getting more into television and and sort of serialized storytelling in college, I realized the thing that I loved about storytelling was getting to stay with a character for a long time. Hmm. And so I moved to LA to hopefully become a, a TV producer because I thought, okay, well, like I'm never gonna make it as a as an actor in Hollywood. Like that's very silly. And I don't know what else you, I you would do. You came to that realization very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did, but then I immediately reneged on it because I got to LA and I got a job at WME, one of the agencies, and was, you know, in the mailroom doing the classic Hollywood route of sort of being an assistant in an agency in the hopes you'll eventually move to a studio or a network or what have you. I lasted like three months at that job. Oh, and wow. I it was so high stress and low mental engagement for me. Yeah. <laughs> Just because like I'm not interested in deal making. I'm not, you know, I'm that's not really what I wanted to be doing. And so I quit and decided to try acting full time. <laughs> Lauren went all in. She took acting classes and worked as an extra in movies and television shows. She also started hosting a friend's web series about Dungeons and Dragons, which inspired her to think about what she could do on her own. But I, I was listless and, you know, doing the whole like working at a restaurant and, mm. and auditioning and just being exhausted because then the auditions I was going on were for roles that were really, really boring because it was like the male leads romantic interest who has four lines. And then you don't book that and you're like, well, if I don't even book the thing that's like not gonna be fun, then what am I doing? So she created her own web series focused on Tumblr fandoms while still trying to make it as an actor and working full time. And in researching her series, she stumbled across a podcast that inspired her in a new way. Welcome to Night Vale. And I just thought, gosh, this is great. And like, I can't do this, I'm not this kind of writer and I, I don't have, you know, Cecil's voice and I don't have this incredible music, but like, I can do the audio part. Like I have a music degree. I kind of know about audio editing a little bit. Hmm. And so I actually wrote the first script of The Bright Sessions in 2014. And so I just sort of put it in a drawer and didn't think about it for about a year because I was just on the grind of working at a restaurant, come home on casting websites, you know, mm. go to audition the next day, make a YouTube video, go to acting class on the weekends, and also like starting to actually make friends and have a bit more of a social life. And ultimately the thing that this sort of pushed me back into making the Bright Sessions and, and starting to, to write again was in the spring of 2015, I got strep throat and it went very wrong and I nearly died. In early 2015, Lauren was hospitalized for five days with a severe case of strep throat. A month after leaving the hospital, the illness returned more forcefully and dangerously. She was hemorrhaging from her jugular vein for two weeks. She developed chronic arthritis, and she had a difficult time getting around. Her doctors told her that if she wanted to be able to use her legs, she needed to stop standing during the day, which meant quitting her restaurant job. She ended up going back to the East Coast to recover at her parents' house for a few months. And that's where the idea for the Bright Sessions came back to her. So I was just like sat on the couch and, you know, watching Bake Off and not doing anything. And maybe I can take the luxury of the time that I have now, right? Like I, I completely own up to the pure privilege I had of like, A, still being on my parents' health care and not mm. having to worry about a six-figure medical bill and having a place to go where, you know, I could be taken care of and, you know, have my my parents help me cover rent while I was, you know, in between jobs and, 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 and having some savings and all of those things that just give you the the privilege of 
time and space and energy to do things. And, you know, that was balanced out by the fact that I was in immense pain every second of every day. Mm. (laughs) But I think I was able to sort of channel that into some writing energy. And by the time that I, I came back to LA and had, had, had sort of gone through the process of putting my life back together with the job and the, the voice lessons and the, and the speech therapy and everything else, I had nine scripts and a couple of friends in acting class that I had been eyeing for roles who were mm. very willing to do stuff for free simply because I said, it'll take, you know, two hours per episode max and you won't have to do anything except show up and like read from the script. Like you don't have to memorize your lines. This is going to be the most luxurious thing ever. And they were just, they were so down. The Bright Sessions is a science fiction podcast about people with superpowers called atypicals. In order to cope with their powers, they see a mysterious therapist named Dr. Bright. The show is built around those therapy sessions. You can't tell anyone about this, right? I mean, the the same patient-doctor confidentiality agreement still applies? Of course. I can't tell anyone what you tell me in this office. And you can't report me to any law enforcement or government agency or anything, right? Well, if you've hurt someone or plan to, I would have No, to. no, no, no. No, God, it's it's nothing like that. I, it's just Well, Okay, you will probably think that I'm completely insane. I mean, I think I'm completely insane. I have thought for 15 years. But well, Here's the thing. Ever since I was a kid, I've been able to to do this this thing that for all intents and purposes should not be possible. And I've read every book that I could get my hands on and I've scoured what feels like the entire internet and I've never come across any kind of explanation for it. And you probably will not believe me, but essentially, unbelievably, I can time travel. And it sucks. One of the more intriguing qualities of the podcast is how its characters challenge conventional views on masculinity and gender roles, themes that Lauren often weaves into her work. One of the very first characters that came out of sort of initially thinking about, okay, what kind of therapy patients would be interesting for this world in which people with supernatural abilities go to therapy and talking to a, a, you know, a friend about things that we found interesting and liking the idea of the typical male jock football player in high school and that character trope um, and then ultimately putting it on its head by having him be an extreme empath and mm. feel the feelings of everyone around him while he's existing in this body that is taught to repress his feelings and not express emotion in a thoughtful way, as I think, you know, is the lesson that's taught to a lot of young men in our culture. Sometimes people don't want others to see their sadness. He probably thought he was hiding it well, and the fact that you noticed frightened him. It brought into focus just how unhappy he is. See what I mean? I I knew how he was feeling, and instead of fixing it, I made him more unhappy. You're always talking about this like it's some sort of stupid gift that that I can help people, but I just – I always fuck things up. That's because you haven't learned how to control it yet. You're so young, and you're dealing with so many of your own emotions that handling others is going to be overwhelming. Being a teenager is hard. You know that. I've said before that I think this ability will get easier as you grow older. Yeah, I know, I know. Being a teenager is rough. There are hormones and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't change the fact that I suck. 
It's, it's not an excuse. Someone was sad and then I opened my mouth and now they're sadder and I don't know what he's going to do or, or how he's going to react or, or if he spent the whole weekend thinking about it. And would you stop that? I can feel your fucking pity bleeding out of you and I don't need it. I'm not some pathetic emotional loser, okay? I'm not like him. Okay, okay, Caleb. Caleb, it's all right. It's all right. And... You know, ultimately, the character ended up being a little bit different than I had initially conceived of him simply because I cast Brigham Snow, who's one of my best collaborators in the role. And we found new facets of this character as we went along. And I think even before I cast Brigham, I was writing the, the first three episodes that Caleb was in and realized that he that this character was in love with this this other boy in his class. And I sort of hadn't necessarily jumped into building that character of like, oh, on top of being an empath, he's also going to be queer. It just is something that came naturally, I think, because I was also exploring, you know, my own, like rehashing my own feelings of sexual identity sort of mm. throughout high school and college when I was figuring myself out. And this idea that he can be this masculine athletic football player who also is deeply sensitive and emotional and mm. those two things are not at odds with each other and that masculinity can still leave space for emotion and for thoughtfulness and and sort of taking what's usually sort of the blunt instrument of the high school jock character and trying to soften it a bit and explore the positive sides of masculinity so when you started making the bright sessions what was the goal did you have one or, or did you just want to make something to call your own? You know, even even at the beginning, my greatest hope was that it eventually would become something bigger and that, you know, best case scenario would get, you know, bought by somebody and then they would, they would you know, like make it into something that could actually make money. Um, the, the very same, th like, quiet hopes and dreams that everybody has doing anything. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, and so I think for the Bright Sessions, the intent was very much to, I think at the beginning just like figure out if I could do it. Hmm. <laughs> I think just like writing the scripts and and directing actors and editing the thing and putting credits music on it and releasing it on an RSS feed and like all of these <laughs> things that I had no idea about, not necessarily thinking that I would find like a big audience. But I think the thing that I hoped for, especially because my introduction to audio fiction was Welcome to Night Vale like, and finding that show through Tumblr, God, maybe like six strangers on Tumblr will like go nuts over this. <laughs> and I think that was really what I was aiming for was like, maybe I can make something that will like speak to a niche fandom. Hmm. Maybe people will end up caring about these characters in a way that I care about them. Coming up, Lauren finds her niche. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. 
this is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. The first season of The Bright Sessions launched in November of 2015 and wrapped in January 2016. By February, the first episode of the series had received 2,000 listens. The show, which had no funding and no budget, was gaining traction organically. And so I thought, okay, 2,000 people is like enough to do more. And so like that February... I started a Patreon and took a month off and said, okay, you know, I, I, cause I already started writing a little bit of a second season cause we were just having fun doing it. Like that's ultimately what led me to writing more episodes was that we were having a good time and, yeah. and I was having lots of ideas about what could happen next. But we went into the second season sort of launching this Patreon, you know, having like maybe like three patrons, two of which were my mom probably. <laughs> um, and not really knowing what the the second season was going to be other than I decided in my infinite <laughs> wisdom, I was like, we're going to do instead of nine episodes, we're going to do 20 and we're not going to release three a month. We're going to do it weekly, actually. And I'm just <laughs> going to launch this before I even know exactly what the end of the season is. And so as a result, like the spring of 2016, when we released the second season is like a bit of a blur. <laughs> yeah. Because I wrote 20 episodes in like <laughs> three months and like fully produced them. But I think when I knew there was something maybe happening, it was actually late March. So it was like a couple weeks after we'd started the second season. I don't know what like prompted me to search like the Bright Sessions hashtag on Instagram, but I did. And someone had made fan art of one of the characters. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is the thing that I wanted. I wanted somebody to, to care about this enough to make fan art. In the middle of the second season, Lauren was able to hire sound designer Misha Stanton, who raised the production quality of the show. And then she started to get noticed by some big podcasting names like Jeffrey Craner of Welcome to Night Vale and the folks at Apple. It really was, you know, a couple of of big players in the podcasting world at the time making a concerted effort to listen to new stuff and to elevate the stuff that they liked. Hmm. And that's not to say that I wasn't grinding on social media trying to get people to listen to it, because I I was (laughs) for months. That was like where most of my time was going into was sort of spending time on Reddit and Tumblr and Twitter trying to get people to listen. But I think that by the time that we had completed season two, we'd had a couple of those bigger folks spotlight us. Hmm. And then it felt like, okay, now... Now I have to think about what I'm doing. The Bright Sessions went on to have four seasons plus a couple of mini-seasons, and it officially wrapped up in 2018, the same year Lauren's career took off. And then between, like, July of 2018 and November of 2018, a bunch of things happened very, very quickly. And that was we wrapped the Bright Sessions, the actual series itself, in you know May of 2018, I think I had started talking to Luminary the month prior to that about spinoffs, and I you know I, and I I knew that we were ending the show, and so I was like, oh well, I can't give you the show, but I have this idea for these other Bright Sessions Universe shows, and, and we had that conversation, and then that same month, basically, John Dryden reached out to me about working on Passenger List potentially, hmm. and two months after our Bright Sessions wrap party, like our final series wrap party. I, in the, in the span of about six weeks, flew to London to direct Passenger List with John. 
while I was in London, I was working on this like insane 30 page proposal for the Marvel job. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get back, I do LA production for Passenger List. And then I get news that, oh no, and then I go to Austin for Austin Film Festival where I finish the final manuscript of my first book. And then I get back and like two days after I get back from Austin Film Festival and turning in my book, I hear that I got the Marvel job. And so it was like, that felt very fast to me because it, it, it because also at the time I was starting to prep the AM archives <laughs> and, and it sort of felt like, oh, I, I all of a sudden feel like the, like the most popular girl at the ball, you know, like everybody's asking me to dance. This is so exciting. In 2019, Lauren started her own podcast production company, Atypical Artists, and launched three Bright Sessions spinoffs, two podcasts, the AM archives and the college tapes and a novel. The Infinite Noise. She's got more books and podcasts in the works, and even bigger projects on the way too. So, does she feel like she's made it? I, no, I don't. I don't feel like I made it at all. I, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities that I've had, and like the collaborators I've been able to work with, and the projects I've been able to work on, and unbelievably grateful that for the past 18 months I've been able to make a living from fiction podcasting. Hmm. But it's a, still a constant uphill battle. And I think the thing that I'm experiencing now is just the fact that audio fiction is much bigger. And especially with, you know, sort of Hollywood studios getting into it and maybe not choosing instead to work with like TV and, and film writers that I'm still constantly proving myself to the people who hold the purse strings. Hmm. And that I think is a feeling that I, I don't know will ever go away. Like, I don't know that anybody ever gets to a point where they're like, oh, I know I'll be able to sell my next show and, and pay rent. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I would love to, <laughs> love to get to that point, but I don't, I don't know if that will be the case. And I don't know if like podcasting will, will be that. Um, because the thing that I'm always fighting now is a selling shows and b selling shows to folks who want to provide a budget that actually will allow me to pay people a living wage. Hmm. I think the influx of Hollywood money into fiction podcasting is great, but I think there are certain attitudes around, oh, well, but it's a podcast so we can make it for five bucks, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, it's way, way cheaper than a single episode of television, but it still costs money. Yeah. And um, yeah, and so I think I think I, I, I feel like I've made it in the indie podcasting scene. I feel like I'm a, I'm a name that like if people are in fiction podcasting and in that like niche community that like people are familiar with my work. But I don't think I've like made it as a writer, if that makes sense. Is there anything you're working on that maybe doesn't fit the Hollywood mold? Um but you really want to make? Yeah, it's a... <laughs> so a couple years ago, I played Red Dead Redemption 2 and got obsessed with cowboys <laughs> and like westerns. And I believe I saw that... your tweet say that, uh, you know, big sad cowboy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> much, relate, much relating to the big sad cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I relate hard to the big sad cowboy. And I've always been really fascinated with ideas of, of Americana and ideas of masculinity. And mm. I think that for me, the reasons that I've never really related to Westerns before playing Red Dead Redemption 2 is because they are this really toxic American male fantasy that mm. like I have no interest in exploring. Whereas the reality of the American West is actually that it was way less white and way more queer mm. than the Hollywood Westerns would have you believe. And so I just started, you know, reading about the history of 
outlaw culture and, and cowboys in the American West and and the, the various people who actually were occupying those spaces. And long and short of it is that I want to make a, a queer cowboy rom-com. <laughs> maybe unsurprisingly, nobody's interested in making that except for me. <laughs> you, never know, you never know. You absolutely but you do never not know. know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that actually leads me to my final question, which is, um, what do you hope gets preserved within the experience you had coming up through the indie fiction podcast scene? I think the thing that I have loved about the space and the community for the past few years is this feeling of creative freedom and is this feeling of if you have an idea that you're passionate about there is an audience for it and some of them actually will pay you money for it that's something that i hope gets preserved is the idea that niche stuff can still exist and that you don't have to to make the most marketable idea that then gets network noted to death <laughs> my my queer cowboy rom-com like that's something to me that's like oh yeah like the audio fiction audience there there are people for this there are people who will want to listen to this because i i know them and i've talked to them about this project and like i do think there's an audience here for this it's just impossible to sell to anybody right because it's a period piece and it's queer men and it's non-white cast and all these things that like hollywood has a hard time wrapping their brains around but I, I really like that's a show and there are a couple of other shows that I'm eyeing where I'm like, oh, yeah, I am eventually just going to make this through like Kickstarter or Patreon or or my own funds from another project because I want to see this exist. And like, I don't really want to wait around anymore for people to give me the permission to do it. But that's really hard to do. And, you know, I really want to make sure I'm paying people well and having the understanding that there are, you know, certain aspects of building a podcast that... I just simply cannot do. And unless I want to dedicate you know, years of study to something that I'm not going to be able to do. Hmm. And, you know, least of which is, is just I can't voice every single role in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I do, I do, you know, in, in a couple of typical projects, you'll, you'll hear my voice in the, <laughs> in the walla in the background because I'm always the, the loop cast person who jumps in and, you know, says the, the passerby lines. I've really learned the benefits of having wonderful note givers and collaborators and people who are, are helping you make this thing that you're making even better. Mm. But I, I think that there's also the struggle of doing a bigger project and having a million cooks in the kitchen who are all yeah. giving notes on a thing that you created that you're the expert on. <laughs> it, it sounds like the core tension is, on the one hand, you, you want to get respect in those rooms. And on the other hand, you want to preserve this feeling of like i want to make things for a community of people who like this thing that i like yeah yeah hmm. i think i'm starting to find a balance of that of like okay these are the projects that like i do want feedback and i do want notes in or these are the partners you know i've been developing a show with a particular partner for a while and you know they're they're like a, a bigger sort of hollywood adjacent company but like their notes are great and it's very few people in the company who are collaborating with me and like that's the kind of stuff where i'm like okay like the pushback i'm going to get from this group of people on certain things are going to be things that make this story better hmm. and things that like are outside of my perspective that are important versus like oh well i don't think that this particular like bisexual experience is actually true to life and it's, it feels unrealistic and it's like well it's based on my bisexual experience so it's not unrealistic but okay <laughs> you know like stuff like that where you yeah. just kind of get networking notes because they're thinking about like the marketing or audience side of things and you're still focused on the story right. yeah i i think i think that tension is exactly right and i think you know i i recognize that i will uh, not be able to 
you know, get a huge budget to make exactly what I want with no input. And that, that probably wouldn't even be beneficial to my storytelling overall. But I think it's about, yeah, finding the projects where I am I am happy to sort of compromise on certain things and then finding the projects where maybe I want to cordon them off and just do them in a couple of years and just start saving up my own money for those projects now because I want to make them in a specific way and I haven't found that collaborator that's going to like make that show with me in that way yet. Well, I look forward to watching uh, the queer rom-com cowboy <laughs> western. Um, I, I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you get to play in Assassins one day. It'd be dope. Oh, me too. <laughs> uh, Laura, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I appreciate this. Thank you so much, Nick. This was so great. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash Servant of Pod. The show is produced by Andrea Azwahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Christian Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.